You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome into the Otson Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show. Uh, getting you ready for this week's Oregon at Ohio State football game. Uh, the Ducks are 1-0. The Buckeyes are 1-0. And we, on Monday, got about an hour with Mario Cristobal, offensive coordinator Joe Moorhead, defensive coordinator Tim DeRuder. Uh, the Oregon media got what was about an hour's time with all three of them uh, broken up individually. Uh, to discuss Fresno State, learn about what the coaches uh, have have taken in from film review, as well as preparing themselves now for Ohio State. And I think ultimately the, the two major questions going into this press conference, uh, going into Monday and exiting Monday, was the news surrounding Kayvon Thibodeau and his availability and the status of two suspended players, DJ James, Jamal Hill, and will they be made available for Ohio State? Uh, Both guys expected to be starters at the beginning of the year. Let's start with Thibodeau. And I think this story is kind of blowing up a little bit bigger than it actually is. Um, He has a sprained ankle. He is going through rehab. But that's about all Crystal Ball would say. And I think I think he's kind of riding this momentum of some people, you know, some Ohio State media have said that he's probably not playing in this football game against Ohio State. And I, I think Oregon is going to ride that uh, as long as they possibly can because he, I mean, he is he hurt? Yes. Will he be 100%? No. Do we expect him to play? I think it's pretty much a foregone conclusion, right? I do too. Um, I mean, I would be surprised if he doesn't play. This is a massive football game. He came back and played a little bit. I know they retaped the ankle and, and, and maybe in the, maybe there was something in the locker room that happened at halftime where there was some concern. But again, if you read Mario's quotes from right after the game, which Matt, you can maybe pull those up because I, I don't remember them verbatim, but it was something to the effect of, we don't think it's very serious. The x-rays came back negative. Um, that kind of information to me is really positive. And today he was asked several times about Kayvon. Um, he said he's going through treatment and rehab, trying to work himself back to being able to play. That was a good question that was asked by um, James Crepe of the Oregonian about, would you be able to play Thibodeau if he doesn't practice all week? The answer is no. So if Thibodeau is unable to practice throughout this week, I don't think you can expect him to play on Saturday. The part that makes that tough in terms of trying to read the tea leaves is we can't watch practice and Mario's not going to tell us if he was a full part practice participant. So um, I think we might be waiting until game time almost for this, unless Mario on Wednesday, when we do get a second chance to speak with him before kickoff, unless he then kind of comes out and says, Kayvon's been practicing. He's good to go. I kind of think Matt is right though, that this is one of those things where there's a little bit of gamesmanship going on here. Seems like Kayvon's probably going to play, but because there is some sort of sense that he might not, you just play it up that way because there is a strategic advantage to having some uncertainty, especially with a player as good as he. Yeah, I don't think there's any way he doesn't play. <laughs> it's a it's a sprained ankle, and Mario came out and said that, which I was shocked about post-game, where he came out and said sprained ankle, x-rays are negative. 
Uh, you know, we saw him in the boot. We saw him walk off on his own power. It didn't look great at first when he was, you know, on the ground, but walked off on his own power, came back in the game, had a retape, like you guys had said, played most of the second quarter, and then didn't play for the rest of the game. Uh, I think that was more of a precautionary thing than anything else, putting him in the walking boot, just making sure that ankle stays, you know, in, in the right spot and doesn't have any possibility of rolling again. He's going to play. Yeah. Like, this is clearly a mind game. But it's Kayvon Thibodeau. It's national television. It's Ohio State. Like this is obviously Cristobal wants KT to show up and you know perform as he should and give him the national attention. But he's also a huge part of the defense, and they need him to play. We saw it in, against Fresno State just for the first quarter where he was fully healthy. But there's, I bet my life savings on it that he's going to play. It's Whoa. just, just going to happen. Yeah. Uh- Jared, you're 23 years old. Is that, I mean, is that even enough for me to, to really want to put, put a bit in with here? <laughs> uh, it just depends how, how down bad you are. That's, that's some extra help, but it's always good. It's always good. I, I also will not be betting because I think he's going to play. But um, those listening, hey, Jared's life savings on the line. On the line. He's just out of college, so it's not, it's not <laughs> what some of us might be. But, hey, it's out there. It's available if you want it. <laughs> I do think he's going to play and I would be utterly shocked. And maybe it's, you know, maybe the, the severity of the sprain as halftime set in and his adrenaline wore off, it made it clear that he couldn't go. Um, but I, I have just this feeling of seeing that he played in the second quarter. And if it was Ohio state, that game, he probably would have finished. He would have found a way to, to, to finish the game. And, and honestly, even though the score was close, they didn't need him to play against Fresno State to win. And the fact that he probably could have made the injury worse by playing on it just makes the importance of getting him start resting, start rehabbing uh, as soon as they possibly could in the second half of the Fresno State game made sense. Now, the other bit of news here is Oregon is getting back to – uh, projected, assumed from within the media, starters on defense for Ohio State. Uh, Mario Cristobal reinstated Jamal Hill and DJ James after their August 3rd uh, off-field incident involving pellet guns and, and shooting at some people uh, as they were driving by. Um, they were reinstated into the program late in fall camp. Tim DeRuder said they've been practicing with the team now for a couple of weeks. Um, they Cristobal announced that they will be back. They will be made available. Didn't say they would play, but they would be available to play and that they would also be included on the depth chart that I, I think was hilariously not released until after all these press conferences were done. Um, I think that was by design for many reasons, and we don't have to go into that. But the impact of Jamal Hill and DJ James being back with the defense, being made available. And let's be real. I think we're all agreement here too. Correct me if I'm wrong. I expect them to play. Well, if we're, I think we're speaking the same language. I think Mario and I were speaking the language, same language. I asked, this, I asked the question and I'd also asked last week, is anybody on the depth chart? If they're on the depth chart. Are they playing? Are they available? And he said, yes. And so the fact that he then goes, maybe I'm over reading this and he's just saying they're on the depth chart, but I, I think because I asked the question and he remembered and we just discussed specifically like what it means to be on the depth chart, what that means. The fact that he says that leads me to believe they're definitely playing. 
and, the and they're, they're available and they're going to play real, real quick here. This is pull back the curtain a little bit. We're recording this podcast on Monday um, for Tuesday's show. The depth chart was literally mm-hmm. released while we were doing this show. And DJ James is listed as uh, one of three starting cornerbacks at boundary corner. Jamal Hill is behind Bennett Williams. There's no, or there's nothing there. Um, but at boundary corner, DJ James is listed as a potential starter. So they're, they're going to play. Yes. Yep. So there's, there's that information. I was actually wondering if that had been released because that was, and we should note for those listening, if they're going like, okay, why is it weird that it's one thirty or so and they haven't released a depth chart? Well, it usually comes out at like 10 or 11 AM right before the press conference. So we have some idea yeah. of some questions to ask personnel related. The fact that it happens afterwards, I do think was, was intentional. Is yes. Drew Mathis on there at all, Matt? Uh, they no. do not have Drew Mathis on there at all. Okay. I get that. And that's also an indication that this is representative <laughs> of who's available because Mara said that Mathis is definitely out for Ohio state, but he was hopeful. And this is actually one thing we should note. Mathis missed the full second half of the, um, the Fresno State game as well with an injury. His looked worse. Um, you know, Kavon came out the field putting some weight on his leg. Drew was carried off and basically just couldn't put anything on his – I think it was his, his right leg. I was um, pretty surprised that Mario Cristobal came out and said that they expect Drew Mathis back at some point this season. Yeah. I was expecting it to be a season-ending injury. Like that, that was sort of – yeah, I'd wondered the same. So, But it's not. At least Kayvon Thibodeau is also listed as a starter so yes. on the depth chart. Anything else there, Jared, that like catches your fancy? Anything else that looks different? I, and this is kind of happening in real time because, again, we usually we have this beforehand. And I, right. I, is there just anything from a, that looks funky? Just from a live reaction, I don't remember what the quarterback depth chart was last week, but Ty Thompson is the second listed guy. Yeah, that was um, the case last week. It was, I believe, so. Perfect. Then, yep. Yeah, no, nothing, nothing obvious. Let me, let me throw one that's really – we're doing this online. This is great podcasting, me asking about what's on the depth <laughs> chart. But those listening might not have seen the depth chart either, so maybe this is informative. What, what's going on at place kicker between Lewis and, and Cattleman? Is, that, is there an or there? Or Still is an or. Okay. Mm-hmm. It remains open. Kind of. Sort of. Kind of. It, maybe. So, uh, Who knows? <laughs> now, the impact of DJ James and Jamal Hill being – available and let's just assume they're going to play because we all think that um does this shed some light in a positive manner is this going to be a significant addition for Oregon's defense as they face which Tim DeRuiter said I don't think he's ever he said he's never in his mind could recall a time where he's had to prepare for not one but two first round receivers uh in the same game before yeah, this is some – yeah, of course it helps because Ohio State's receivers are just so damn good. And this is the best receiving – I mean, honestly, you can make a pretty strong argument, and I don't know who would have resistance to respond to it. This is the best receiving core Oregon's ever faced, period, ever. I mean, I mean, this – you look at the way they talk about Wilson and Alave, this isn't just like, oh, these are like two of, of the best. This is the two best wide receivers nationally in terms of where you look at from an NFL draft prospectus, in terms of some Blitnikoff stuff. Um, and this is like game changing guys. So yeah, having James available to play, whatever that looks like, that's helpful. Having Hill available to play, whatever that looks like, that's helpful. You hope those guys are, are good cardio. I think that'd be something I'd be concerned about is where they at from a football shape perspective. Two weeks might be enough time to get you in shape, but you hear it every fall camp where Mario says the conditioning is not really good enough until they get to about three weeks in. So 
Um, maybe that aligns better because it is about two weeks from, well, it's like 10 days from when they were reinstated with the team. Cause that was what, like the Friday before the week, um, the, the, the week before Fresno state. So maybe they are better in a better spot condition wise, but I would be concerned just about conditioning as it would anything else. And how many live reps have they actually had? So um, I would, I mean, frankly, I, be careful with putting DJ James against that talent and man coverage off the bat in his first live reps. Like I would prefer probably to start bridges or Manning to like kind of get used to what it feels like to be out there. And then maybe James comes in later, but I think that's potentially dangerous. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Do you want DJ James, the first one manned up on, let's say it's Garrett Wilson. I mean, I know he plays slots, so maybe that's going to fall on somebody else, but like, that seems kind of, that seems pretty tough spot to start your, your 2021 season matched up on. If one he's of the drastically players. better though than TriQuest bridges and Dante Manning, you got to do it. I don't percent. Is he? I don't know if he is. Right. That's the question. I mean, it's obviously it's going to help Oregon to have both of those guys back. You know, they both have 20 career games. They started almost all or almost every game last year. I know Jamal Hill didn't. He had an injury for one of them. But yeah, it's a huge help. And it's they frankly, they need the secondary help right now. They're just a hair too thin. So this gives them just a little bit more depth in the secondary, especially a corner. Uh, Bridges and Manning played a great game against Fresno State as long as they were in man coverage. And so, uh, again, adding James will give them just another guy that they could potentially throw at because maybe Dante Manning is quick enough to hang with all these guys while Tri-Cres Bridges isn't. Maybe DJ James fills that speed route and can help cover a man or whatever they need to do. And when they sit back in zone, maybe they throw Bridges on a lava and try to disrupt them with length rather than speed. What One thing that... So, I was just going to say one thing, Manning, just a quick interjection here before I throw it back to Jared. Dante Manning told me DJ James has the quickest feet he's ever seen from a defensive back. So if that's kind of the, the skill set matchup, maybe that works. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll find out on Saturday. But I, I just think it, obviously it's going to help the team and help the defense in general, especially at Hill at safety. I think he's – I think Bennett Williams is a solid player and he deserves to start. But I do think probably by week three or four you'll see Jamal Hill starting because he was – tremendous last year and he showed a lot of true brilliance as a freshman too yeah I I I think I expect Bennett Williams to start against Ohio State um as he's listed on the depth chart but eventually it it might be Stony Brook it or it might be Arizona two weeks after that but I, I think it's Bennett Williams time as that starting nickel um or I guess now star position is probably on the shorter end of the spectrum here. Um, unless Bennett Williams just has some insane, you know, streak of games and really, you know, continues to ascend up in production, which certainly could happen here, you know, but I think if you had to ask me at the end of the year, who's Oregon's full-time starter at star, it's, it's Jamal Hill. So I'm in agreement with, with you guys, DJ James. Um, I think he's probably more ready for, the bright light moments that's going to come with playing Ohio state than Triquez or Dante Manning is. And that could also factor into it. Like maybe, maybe he doesn't start in DJ James, but he might get himself on the football field quicker because uh, he's used to playing under this pressure, like situations already, you know, in previous games. Not, not to mention the fact that if these receivers are as good as we think they are, they're going to pose a lot of problems for anyone out there. And it might be a thing where it's just kind of like, all right, let's go back to the drawing board. Let's see what DJ can do on Alave this time out if after something didn't go well the time before. I don't want to be too doom, too doom and gloom, but 
CJ Stroud had four passing touchdowns and I think three of them were more than 50 yards and the other was like 38 yards. So, I mean, they, they, yeah. they move the ball up. They're super explosive in the passing game. So um, you got to kind of throw the whole kitchen sink at them. Something that Tim Ruder did say, and I think Mario too, just got to mix up some, some looks, throw a lot at them. Um, we'll see what Oregon can do, but from a personnel perspective, I think we'll see both Hill and James play and, and potentially contribute quite a bit depending on how the game plays out. Yeah. Like you said, Eric, it, it just might not matter the fact that they're back. Yeah. You know, it, it could just be where the talent disparity, even though Oregon's cornerbacks are talented, you know, they're going against two All-Americans and then at Ohio State. So it just might not make a real big difference to have both of those back. Yeah. Sad but true. Now, the review of Fresno State and how Oregon performed in that one, um, Eric, or excuse me, Jared, you wrote a story on DuckTerritory.com Monday kind of going through the lack of execution. Um, mm -hmm. And you can let's, – let's get some examples from what you wrote about. You don't have to give the whole story away. It is a VIP feature. But that was kind of backed up by what the coaching staff also told us as well uh, shortly after you wrote that story. Yeah, so I went back and Eric, you were with me. We we, we watched the game on on uh, Sunday, and there were just a bunch of, of issues with execution more so than what people want to see. Where it's like Anthony Brown was just terrible today, and that's the reason why Oregon's offense was bad. Um, now Anthony Brown made mistakes. Don't get me wrong, but there were a lot of just offensive execution errors that were just glaring. There was one play. I think one of the biggest. One of the biggest errors in what I saw was uh, this was in the fourth quarter. It was a tight end screen. It was a fake tight end screen to Spencer Webb down at the sideline. Mm -hmm. And everything on this play basically worked to perfection except Alex Forsythe in the middle at center, just not picking up a rusher. And once he didn't pick up the rusher, he got on to AB. Brown had to throw to Spencer Webb, even though it was a fake screen, and Oregon ends up losing yards. Now, at the same time of that fake screen, Johnny Johnson pretends to block. But as soon as he gets to his spot, he releases, goes right up the field. But all three defensive backs at Fresno State are pointed directly at Spencer Webb waiting for that screen because Oregon has, you know, uh, mimicked it in the past. So if that running, if that linebacker or defensive end gets picked up by Alex Forsythe, that's an explosive play. You know, Johnny Johnson is basically running free down the sideline for Anthony Brown to hit. And so those are the types of plays that Oregon fans and, 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 and we have as well have wanted to see those explosive types of plays. But from an execution standpoint, uh, I think Joe Moorhead said that we had that, that Oregon had 25 deep, deep ball play calls going on. I think that was just 25 pass play calls, by the way. That, okay. But I thought it was might have included deep stuff, but it was specifically passes. Gotcha. Yeah. So at the end of the day, they had plenty of, you know, explosive play calls, but they just weren't executed right. Whether it be blocking on the offensive line with the tight ends or anything in between, it just never came to fruition because their execution wasn't good enough. I asked Moorhead and actually I've, I've got a couple of specific plays that we, I think we, you can also talk to Jared, not to make this a too long of a podcast, but there's some other things that were interesting, but I did ask um, Moorhead about what he found to be areas that need to be cleaned up. And the, the kind of the laundry list was sticking on blocks and keeping a clean pocket. That was the first thing he said. And I think the fact that he led there is, is notable. Like Oregon's past mm -hmm. 
protection was frankly terrible for most of the game. Um, there were stretches where it was fine and Anthony Brown had a lot of success. There were other stretches where it was really appalling and uh, Brown was basically, the play was basically done when it was snapped because there was either an assignment error or a guy just got beat one-on-one. Um, mm-hmm. Or had also mentioned running backs running the way they did in the fourth quarter for all four quarters. I think he felt that they started off slow. Wide receivers uh, blocking on the well on the perimeter and catching passes. I know uh, Mario Cristobal pointed to Micah Pittman's drop touchdown and made, made note of that. That was a ball that hit the receiver on the hands. It should have been a touchdown. Um, and then the last couple he said were uh, quarterbacks making the right reads or the quarterback in this case, Anthony Brown, and then the consistency of execution sustained for four quarters. Um, I did want to note just like specific to Anthony Brown, because we've now back, gone back and watched it. There were three sequences in this game, Jared, and we talked about this mm-hmm. obviously off air right after we watched the game where Brown attempted three straight pass attempts. Yeah. Two sequences yeah. were absolute disasters and one was fantastic. But I bring that up to say, I think there's this sense that, um, that maybe the offense wasn't trusting Brown to, to, full, you know, to pull everything off and maybe they kind of held things back. I think you look at those nine pass attempts, and I know you get your notes out, Jared, because there was yeah. a lot there. That se- those sequences seemed really important to me because it felt like the offense was you know, put in his hands and they said, hey, go do something for us. And two times he couldn't get it done, and another time he really did. Yeah, and the two times he couldn't get it done, uh, one of them, one pass was a drop from Maliki Matavajo in the backfield, which looked like a, it was a great play designed by Moorhead. Uh, Maliki faked a block, then flipped outside, and then basically was running a tight end screen, which was interesting as well. But he had blocking down the field. He just dropped it. Nothing you can do on Brown. Um, the fourth offensive, excuse me, the fifth offensive drive from Oregon featured a, a few runs in a row and then three straight passes from Brown which was a four-yard completion to Spencer Webb, the backwards almost uh, fumble pass to C.J. Burdell, and then uh, a missed pass to Jalen Red on the sidelines for 15 yards. And the, the final two were just Anthony Brown's fault. Mm-hmm. You know, they were just poor throws, and that's just what it was. But on the other, the, the second three straight offensive pass plays, you know, Brown excelled. He had time in the pocket. He set his feet. He excelled. He hit Chris Hudson and he hit Micah Pittman over the middle. It was easy. It, well, it seemed easy at the time. And then the third set, again, was was the Maliki Montavajo drop. And then before that was an on-the-run throwing across his body to Montavajo again, which ended up being two yards behind him. So it wasn't even a great pass. And then the third was a bad read. He threw to Travis Dye out of the backfield for a gain of four or five yards. When if he waited just a half second more, Jalen Red was cutting out of his his route to the sideline, which would have been at least a 15-yard gain and a first down. So that's just a read error. You know, Brown has the capability. It was clear in the game at points when he had time, when he made his right reads, he made the right decision and got, you know, balls over the middle to Hudson or Pittman for 15 yards or Johnny Johnson down the sideline. You know, he has the capability. He just They just need to execute which I think was the main message that Moorhead was delivering today. Yep. I do think, is it fair to say, like, after rewatch, after listening to the players, like, it, it kind of goes in line with what we said originally on the on our, like, post-game podcast was Anthony Brown had his mistakes, but and I think this maybe reaffirms it after you guys with the rewatch um, and my, my own rewatch as well is – 
Anthony Brown had mistakes, but he was only part of the problem of lack of execution on the offensive side of the football. It was a combination of guys not executing, whether it was Anthony Brown being ready to fire it downfield and the offensive line not providing the, the proper blocking, or uh, maybe CJ Verdell is going to the right hole, but uh, a potential touchdown is wiped away because a block was not made um, or on the vice versa, a potential touchdowns wiped away because a running back did not hit the hole correctly. Um, mm-hmm. Anthony Brown certainly could improve, needs to improve, should improve, but I don't think Oregon's offensive problems are squarely to be blamed on him. Sure. Jared, I would say there were at least three touchdowns Oregon left on the board that like were not Brown's fault at all. Um, and that, yes. might, that might be even too low of a number. There were two on back-to-back plays. Yep. So, and you could read that on Duck Territory. I go through all of them. I go through the two back-to-back plays. It's, it was very interesting to watch. And you know, Eric and I were, were watching it on the TV. We'd sit and we'd get up there at the TV. We'd point, we'd point out all the, all the zones and everything. So I, I do think after watching that, I almost feel a little better about Oregon's offense. And just from a pure execution standpoint, they just need – it just needs to be better. And when it becomes better, they'll have more opportunities in Oregon's offense. will showcase it's that it's not this vanilla E offense. I know the play calling runs up the middle. It seems that way, but they have the capability to be somewhat of an explosive offense. Yep. Agreed. And I don't think the play calling was quite as vanilla as I thought it was. I think there was a couple more things that were interesting there. There's a lot more on ducktarter.com that, that Jared wrote in his machinations piece, by the way, he'll have a second story. Just probably up by now, but he's got a second story on the defense that'll go up Tuesday morning. Um, you might be listening, you might have probably already listened to his podcast by then, or maybe, but um, so there'll be more kind of breakdowns from the rewatch offense and defense. Uh, that one focusing specifically on some, some kind of past defense stuff and what happened there. Also, offensively, I know a lot of people were excited about seeing Troy Franklin, true freshman. He was listed not as a co starter, but as the starter at one of Oregon's three wide receiver positions. He did not start in that game against Fresno State and was actually out there uh, only for a handful of snaps. And I think once kind of the dust settled of, okay, what happened to, to have this game be so close? What, what's the status of KT? What, what's going on at quarterback? After all those questions and discussions kind of sell amongst the fan base, I think this was probably the next big one was, wait, we didn't see a ton of Troy Franklin. Where did he go? What happened? Was he hurt? And we kind of got some clarity on that and explains why he did play, but he only was uh, out there for a very limited amount of snaps. Yeah, and credit to, to Matt for kind of hearing some of this before. I think a lot of people heard about it Saturday morning of just like, oh, it sounds like Franklin might not play very much because he's dealing with something. Um, but yeah, so Franklin, it sounds like was nicked up was what was the term Mario used. Um, you know, he said he was limited throughout the game, but they felt over the course of it, he came back to full speed. I don't know the snap count. I wish they would do that. There was a portion of the 2019 or 20 season where they started keeping snap counts and, re- and sending it out to media and it was really helpful. And then they stopped. I don't know why. Um, I wish that practice would change. It's very, tenu- it's very tedious to go through a full game and try to actually come up with an accurate one. Um, I've done it before. It's kind of a waste of time for the most part. Um, you may learn some things, but it's very, it takes a couple hours to go through. Um, 
But what I will say is, is Franklin didn't play a ton, and Mario Cristobal seems to indicate they think he will be playing a much closer to a full amount of snaps against Ohio State. He said he had a great practice on Sunday, practiced fully, and, quote, we expect him to be back to normal. So Franklin's debut probably wasn't the one fans expected. It certainly wasn't the one I expected. I predicted he would lead the team in receiving yards and score his first touchdown, and he wasn't targeted. Um, I don't know if we can expect him to like dominate against Ohio State, but certainly I think we'll see him on the field a little bit more. And that that should be a positive return for Oregon, which should help uh, just bolster Oregon's receiving core even more going forward. Now, um, defensively, let's let's talk here for a little bit. Um, obviously, we mentioned at the beginning Tim DeRuiter, uh kind of threw out that. I think Eric, you asked that question. You kind of laughed about it. Of, facing not one but two potential first-round draft picks at receiver. I think that's going to draw the headlines. That's going to be everything that – and understandably so um, – of why this is going to be so important uh, for Oregon to, to be better at on defense. Um, but I thought Tim DeRuiter brought up a really interesting and, and really good point was their offense and their passing attack, it, it leans heavily on – the play action and that's set up by their ability to run the football early on and suck everyone in and and get people away from their keys. And that feels like that feels like the chess move of this football game is yes, they have talented receivers that they are going to be the rest best receiving court Oregon will face all year and probably the best unit in the entire country this season. But if you can stop the run, and if you can hold to your keys on the play actions, that's going to be the, the first step in a couple to winning on passing downs against Ohio State when, when they have the football. Yeah. No, I think people need to be aware that they have these receivers, but they've got a pretty darn good group of running backs as well. Uh, Mayan Williams was the leading running back in that game. He had nine carries for 125 yards. 71 came on a touchdown. Master Teague is the name a lot of fans probably already know. He played quite a bit a year ago. Um, And like Mario Cristobal said, this is a veteran experienced offensive line as well. So, I mean, I think the thing you have to realize here is that the receivers, they get a lot of the attention, but this offense is super talented. And you can even, like we saw with Minnesota, kind of keep them in check for a half. I mean, Minnesota really did a good job, I thought. of. I mean, they gave up the big, long touchdown run to Williams in the first quarter. It was like 70 yards. That was obviously not great. But, hey, they kind of limited what C.J. Stroud was able to do until halftime. And then the Ohio State made adjustments. And they came out in the second half. It was, like I said, explosive play, explosive play, explosive play. You look up, they win by two scores. And it kind of felt like it could have been even more. Um, I think for Oregon's defense, it's you don't want to – play exclusively to stop the big play and, and, you know, try to defend because you think that's coming all the time, because if you do, then you're going to get lost on a lot of what they do on the ground and a lot of what they do at the line of scrimmage. Um, and I think if Oregon can win on first and second down, which frankly, I thought they did a great job against the run against Fresno state, obviously a very different animal this week, but they can win those downs. They'll give themselves a shot defensively against the star wide receivers. I say a shot because I still think it's going to be a tall task to expect Oregon to, to keep Ohio State under, I don't know, three or four or five touchdowns. But um, certainly they need to, to, to get to that goal, to put themselves in a position to win. Um, they need to be really good against the run on first and second down as well. Yeah, Oregon, uh, their defensive line needs to step up. And they did a good job against Fresno State. You know, they held 
the first half, Fresno State only ran for negative eight yards, which is pretty good. In the game, they ran for less than 100. That's great. But, you know, this Ohio State running back group is absurd. And Eric, Eric didn't mention, but they have Trayvon Henderson, five-star true freshman who's – I thought after watching the Minnesota game that he was probably their most talented back, and that's saying a lot compared to Master Teague, which, by the way, fantastic name. Um, but, yeah, I think – I think the big plays are going to be a huge predictability of the outcome of the game. I think Ohio State will get their big play. It's going to happen. Someone's going to fall down in coverage and Alave is going to slip free or there's just going to be a great blocking scheme and Trayvon Henderson's going to take it to the house for 50 yards. It's how often you can limit, you know, chunk plays, stuff over 20 yards, you know, 35-yard receptions. And I think that'll be the key factor in Oregon's ability to potentially hang tight with Ohio State, at least on the defensive end. Um, I kind of expect Oregon to go big on the interior line. Like I would maybe see a lot of like a combination of Dorless, Hudson, and or Keon Ware, Hudson, and Jason Jones, maybe all three at a time, and just try to match bodies with bodies. Now, as we wait the status of Kayvon Thibodeau, um, I, I do think we need to discuss uh, the play of Braden Swenson, the guy that basically replaced Kayvon Thibodeau the most. Um, Trevor Mai played a little bit um, as, as well in that role. But I think Swenson had a really good performance on Saturday against Fresno State. And Cristobal and DeRuiter were both uh, very high on the impact that he had in that game and the potential he's going to have to have uh, against Ohio State, even if Kayvon Thibodeau does play in this football game. Swenson played a lot before Thibodeau even went down. We should note he actually had the first sack of the game. Um, really good internal pressure by Thibodeau. Actually, I don't know if it was a stunt or something, but um, created the space for Swenson to come out and, and, and get the sack. Um so, like, he's going to play a lot regardless, I think, of if Thibodeau's available or not. So that's a name just to know. Um, I thought he was really, really good with the exception of one really bad error on a run play, which actually, after Jared and I rewatched this, maybe we're giving away some of your writing for later the week, uh, might have actually been Steve Stevens' fault. It was a 45-yard gain and not like a 12-yard gain, but um, terrible containment by Swenson on the edge. Other than that, I thought he was pretty darn good from a assignment perspective. It seemed like he kind of made all the right plays, was really active in on quite a bit of stuff. Other names to know at outside linebacker that also played a lot, though, um, Trevin Mai, which had – I haven't mentioned this play. I just want to mention it because it was my favorite play of the entire game, and it was where the Oregon lines up the play after, I think, Kayvon goes out. Maybe it's two plays after. Trevin doesn't know if he's in or not because Trevin is, is playing the same role as Kayvon. Um, runs off the field, realizes they only have 10 players on the field, sprints back on. This all happens pre-snap and then makes a tackle for loss or, or, or stop at the line of scrimmage. So um, that was like, honestly, one of the more comical plays of the game. If you go back and watch it and a really good play by my eye to kind of stick with it and stay focused, despite being confused a little bit. Um, I thought he performed really well as well. Jake Shipley played quite a bit. Um, and then Adrian Jackson and Mason obviously played a lot. And those are kind of role guys. You're going to see a lot of, I think if Thibodeau doesn't play, you'll see a lot more of my eye and, and, uh, and Shipley, sorry. Um, if he does play, you'll see the the normal rotation with with Swinson, Ajax, and and a lot of uh, Nice Funa. No doubt, this defense is going to be up to a tall task to 
stop what's been one of the best offenses in college football the last few seasons and probably will be one of the best offenses, if not the best offense this year in college football. And um, real quick, uh, it was interesting to hear Mario Cristobal talk about C.J. Stroud, Ohio State's uh, redshirt freshman quarterback. He is their starter. Um, He won the job during fall camp for the Buckeyes. He was asked about Stroud uh, by an Ohio State reporter and uh, Chris Ball was very complimentary, you know, said they, they tried like heck to recruit him to come to Oregon. Um, and so you're going to get a glimpse. And this is kind of CJ Stroud is one of those many quarterbacks that have West Coast ties that are currently playing and starting for some of the best college football teams across the country. So it's it's not only Oregon's responsibility, but the entire Pac-12's responsibility uh, to win these types of games to kind of stem that transition where college programs from back East or in the Midwest or in the South are coming to the league's recruiting, you know, fruit or recruiting grounds of California and, and taking the best players. And so uh, this will be yet again, another game in which uh, Oregon is, is facing off against the guy that they desperately wanted at quarterback. Just one thought on this, the trend nationally, you look at the top teams, Alabama starting quarterback, Bryson Young, LA area, Clemson's quarterback, DJU, I'm not even going to pronounce, DJU, DJ Ugalele, uh, how are you pronounced? I know that's not quite right. His name's being pronounced. I hear it and it's like, I still don't know what to say. Um, also from Los Angeles, CJ Stroud, Los Angeles, all the same recruiting class, those three. And then even at Georgia, yeah. JT Daniels was somebody that was obviously started at USC and then transferred like, you, you can talk at all you want about how SEC and the ACC has better talent. A lot of the good talent they have at quarterback comes from the West Coast because, frankly, West Coast produces better quarterback talent than, than anywhere else. It's going to do it for us. Oh, go ahead, Jared. Oh, I was just going to say, like, C.J. Stroud's recruitment is one of the wildest like I, <laughs> that I remember. And it's, you know, going from, like, a low three-star to a five-star in, like, a calendar year is pretty crazy. But yeah, Eric, that's a great point. You know, all, all three of those quarterbacks are, and JT Daniels included, are tremendous players. They're all, you know, there for top 10 national teams and they're all from Southern California. They're all from, you know, basically at the time with that 2019 class, like Oregon was recruiting there all the time and it just it didn't work. It's going to be interesting to see this game play out. We'll have full coverage leading up to it on Saturday. I don't know what is playing right now. That is really bad it's gonna be an interesting saturday it's gonna be an interesting week on duckterritory.com as we get you ready for this football game at ohio state 9 a.m pacific time kickoff 12 p.m kickoff local time back in columbus game is on fox with gus johnson joel Klatt, jenny taft on the call for the big noon kickoff game game of the week all three of us will be there, so go to DuckTerritory.com for full coverage leading up to it, in-game, post-game, and then also make sure to check with the podcast throughout the week because we've got a ton of stuff coming your way leading up to the game and then immediately after as well. So thank you for listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace.